So hello and welcome in the name of Hau Heblam Ufer for the ninth episode of Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence with Maria Puig de la Bella Casa and Dimitris Papadopoulos on Future Ecologies, Compounds, Breakdown, Reparation. Coming from feminist and activist areas of science and technology studies, Maria Puig de la Bella Casa and Dimitris Papadopoulos have been engaged in various social and more than social movements while developing the idea of eco-commoning as situated practices that rely on the co-creation of life in an interrelatedness of humans with matter and non-human species. While Dimitri's work approaches ecological issues from the leftist movements of recent decades by decentering the human in insurgency and rebellion, Maria has opened up feminist care discourses to speculative practices in technosciences and permaculture. These practices are based on the relations between humans and non-humans and are thus conceived as more than human. Her highly influential book on matters of care charts care relations of obligation and response ability in more than human worlds and thus develops an understanding of ethics that is not based on moral normativity but on situated interdependencies in concrete living environments. In his latest book, Experimental Practice, Technoscience, Alter Ontologies and More Than Social Movements, Dimitris philosophically reflects his participatory fieldwork in migration and precarious work activism, as well as in hacker and maker communities in the UK East Midlands, where he and Maria live and work. When environmental discourses draw on natural sciences, they draw mostly on biology and physics. In popular ecopolitics, it is the physical forces, like the heating of the planet and the melting of polar ice, that threaten the living. It is the sentient beings we must thus protect from a physically altered environment. Troubling this logic, Maria and Dimitris devoted their recent work to the role of chemicals and soil as media of nature-cultural coexistence. While soil fosters the circular yet asymmetric ex exchange of substances between organic and inorganic species, Man-made chemical compounds, manufactured materials such as plastic, pollute these media and oppress their processes of decomposition and recomposition. While breakdown on a large-scale level of whole ecosystems forms a major threat, in the minor molecular worlds of chemical compounds, breakdown, as in decomposition of materials, forms a hope for small-scale repair and healing. We must break down man-made compounds to reintroduce their elements into the natural cycle and thus expand the compost, so to speak. In the last episodes of Burning Futures with Angela Melitopoulos and Barbara Gloszewski on Becoming Land and with Sueli Rolnik on the micro-political combat, we were focusing on the political sphere which French philosopher and psychoanalyst Félix Caterie conceived of as molecular. 
staying with the molecular, today we deal with actual molecules, chemical agents in eco-political living worlds, as well as with insurgent repair and healing practices of more than human community building and minor science. Yes, and I will shortly introduce Maria and Dimitris. Maria Puig de la Bella Casa is currently Associate Professor at the Center of Interdisciplinary Methodologies at Warwick University. And Dimitris Papadopoulos is Professor of Science, Technology and Society and the Director of the Institute for Science and Society at University of Nottingham. And I will start with addressing a question to Dimitris. Dimitris, our series carries the subtitle On Ecologies of Existence. And of course, there we address the threefold approach of Gattari to ecologies, environmental, social and mental. You conceive of ecology in one of your recent texts as, quote, an embodied understanding of worldly connections between different beings and environments, end of quote. And I would like to stay with this expression of worldly connections, especially if we think about the ways we have been trying to conceive ecology in the discourses. We talk about interrelatedness, interdependence. We talk about coexistence while we're trying to put the human in the ecological equation. And I always ask myself, okay, but the human actually is always related with its surroundings in one or the other way. My question now to you is, what is the texture of this worldly connections? How can we conceive of it theoretically, but then also in practice? How does the human actually can be put in the equation when we think about worldly connections. Thank you so much, Margarita. Thank you, and also many thanks, Max. It's a great pleasure to, to be here. It's a great pleasure to uh, participate in the series and also to be able to um, talk and discuss um, with you both. So thank you very much. Um, ecology, interconnectedness, worldly connections, interdependence. So it seems that interconnectedness is the principle of principles of ecology. And this is important, but might be also problematic because ecology is not a totality. It is not a universality. In ecology, we have uh, biogeochemical cycles. We have distinct ecological spaces. We have biomes. We have ecosystems. We have ways of life. So ecology is not boundless. There is always specificity. Ecology specific is not universal. And this is quite important for me, I think, because one of the things that I want to follow is that everything that wants to become universal is cancerous and it's toxic. And you can think about this idea of universality. The colonial subject is the subject that denies the material embeddedness in place and ecology, is a subject that wants to become universal. The colonial subject is the subject of no ecology that writes the ecology of others. And it is no wonder that ecology as a science is concurrent with settler 
colonial expansion, with travel writing, with assuming the world from the explorer's perspective, with the dispossession of native lands. So ecology is about interconnectedness, but it's not a totality. And interconnectedness, interdependence is always specific and broken down into different spaces and contexts and environments and relations. So we, we found ourselves somewhere where we think of diverging ecologies. We have many ecologies, we have diverging ecologies. And of course, originally, we were thinking about these diverging ecologies as starting from something that would be a general ecology, and this also in the sense of Guattari, who talked about the three ecologies and tries to think them together to create a general ecology. But today we found ourselves in a moment, in a position where this general ecology is broken down, is diverging. And for us, the predicament of today is that it's difficult to restore such a general ecology without becoming a universalist ecology. So the question is then, what breaks a general ecology down? Why it is diverging? What creates the conflict with this, all these different ec ecologies? How do a different ecologies exist because, despite, and against each other? And, of course, we can go back perhaps 10,000 years or so with the transition to sedentary agricultural civilization, which is actually the turning point in breaking this millennia of humans living on the planet with, in, in a sense of a general ecology. Humans developed from a general ecology, ecology of domination, and they developed an instrumental relation to the non-human world, creating diverging ecologies which leads to today's planetary crisis that we are, of course, all of us now facing. So what is the appropriate ecological role of the human within these diverging ecologies? And this is a question that we are exploring now. As much as it is tempting to say that we want to restore a general ecology as a universalist principle, this is not possible. Because if you think the other to a general college today, which becomes universalist, would be a process of terraformation or a process of global geoengineering, so these massive capital-driven projects of terraforming Earth. So th this is the universalist take on a general ecology that is now lacking. So we started thinking... How can we reverse this quest for a general ecology without becoming universalist? And for us, I think what is important is the idea of ecological transitions. We have experimental eco-communities, indigenous sustainable ways of living, local communal infrastructures, environmental justice campaign, community technoscience, maker and hacker movements, agroecology commons transitions, climate, urbanism, social and solidarity economies, scientific 
research in green and sustainable transitions, bioregeneration. We want to create two, three many transitions, two, three many ecological transitions without moving to something that would be a universalist understanding of ecology. Maybe to shift that on the note of care a bit, which is a concept with which Maria has worked a lot and she's been developing concepts of care along eco-feminist trajectories and rethinking care as more than human webs of care. And so, Maria, you derive the concept of a eco-poethical obligation, an obligation that thus is ecological, poetical and ethical at the same time. For example, the obligation to which we alluded in the introduction to break down man-made compounds for soil um, recreation. So would you like to maybe relate your ideas of uh, care to what Dimitris just said and how obligation and ethical responsibility play into this and maybe sure. also relate to what we call agency of humans and not non-humans in, in these webs of care? Sure, that's a, a great question. And first, just I want to thank you both also for bringing us in, in your series and in this wonderful interactive format. So, yeah, um, following up from um, maybe what, what is the, the question here is how care becomes a concept that can be thought in the context of what Dimitris was mentioning before, this, this ecological conception of both um, a multitude and of divergent ways of being ecological today in our worlds and in worlds that we don't know about. And how that comes with this idea of obligation. So I like, I try to develop a bit how that works, um, or how I thought about that. And obviously my work draws and stands on the shoulders of an enormous ground of feminist sociologies, anthropologies, economies of care, feminist ethics, epistemology, but also feminist activism that has revealed how necessary care is for the continuation of life. So this necessity of care, the fact that Care is an activity needed without which our lives wouldn't be possible. That's the grounding from which any thinking or any work on care that I've done or that we have thought together grows from. And from this understanding, and it relates to the notions that Dimitris has developed previously, interdependence is not something that we add to the world. It's our condition. It's a condition of our, our existence. And even before these questions became ecological, the notion of interdependence is something very present in feminist thought about care. The fact that we are vulnerable, dependent beings that need of the webs of actions of care that a myriad of people do for other people to keep themselves going and for the collective. So you see that there is a, a kind of a mirroring thought between the thought of interdependence and this thought in feminist work about dependency of each other as a condition, as an ontological condition, as something we are born within. So now the other thought that comes mm, grounded in feminist thinking is that these doings of care may be seen or unseen, may be paid or not paid, but what is sure is that they are generally devalued. They have been generally devalued and they continue to be. And this may involve maintenance, everyday work of our bodies, taking care of just being alive, but also emotional work and affections that go beyond the everyday maintenance of our existence. 
and that include caring about the environment, caring about other people, being worried, being concerned, being anxious, etc. So that's work that is necessary and that is part of the, the way we understand existence. And the other thing is that because care is so necessary in words that are so stratified and marked by power relations of gender, race and economic status as are our worlds, it is also a contested terrain. So anything that is said about care needs to be thought in this situated way of what are the conditions of care in a particular social, cultural and political context. So there is nothing universal in ways of caring and that's also a feminist background for this idea of uh, care as an obligation. And that's why feminism has made of care a central political issue, so there is no surprise. Now, we can see this involvement and engagement with care from a perspective of ethical responsibility. And now I'm talking about the classic ethics of responsibility, not so much the responsibility that feminist technoscience scholars like Donna Haraway in particular have developed, the ability to respond. I'm thinking of the traditional way of thinking of care in ethics and in ethics that are fundamentally humanist and modern, was that from an ethical perspective is a responsibility we take for each other. So that's how care has been thought mostly traditionally, and that's absolutely fine. But if we envision it from the perspective of an ontological condition of vulnerability and interdependency that we all share, the fact that it's needed for any human life to go on, and even more needed if life is to be livable or flourish, then care is not just an ethical responsibility. It can be seen as something that we are obliged to do by their own material conditions. The fact that that's how we are, this bodily existence of dependence and vulnerability. So this sounds like a slight displacement between responsibility and obligation, but obligation tries to, to express more this necessity, this vital critical necessity that emerged from the ontological condition or the condition of being interdependent from each other. And that's why I try to convey by expressing it as an obligation. What I wanted to stay with is this idea of uh, obligation because it's interesting to think about this collectively as a collective that is not just human. So this embeddedness in the milieu is we are obliged to care, to exist, and we see the awful consequences of not giving care when we see the consequences of neglect, a world in which neglect prevails. We can see what, what happens there. So there is something about the necessity of it thought within this idea of livability and interdependency. Now, this for me is really important to think about care as non-human because then you can think of care not something as done individually or from a perspective of moral responsibility, but as this web of care that wouldn't be able to exist without non-humans. It, it allows to start thinking about how the reproduction of our collective life is not only human, and you can think about that simply by seeing that a lot of the care that humans need for exist requires the contribution that is mostly coerced, actually. We don't ask for the permission of non-human forms of life to give us what we require for the everyday care. You can think simply of all these entities that modern economies have defined as material resources. So they are resources for maintaining humans and serve human well-being. And that's how they are even define, you know, when you think about how institutions define ecosystem services, the services that non-human entities, whether it's trees, from water, mountains, institutions have defined it in a very well-intentioned way in order to actually give them a role in our economy so that they become a, something that we accept as contributing as natural capital to our economies. The very idea of service put there is just framed in terms of serving human well-being. 
you could think that even staying within that framework, which I wouldn't want to stay myself, but even thinking that that's a framework that's helpful in some economic context or institutional context, why don't we put the serving of the human as part of the ecosystem service we need to provide in the same, in, at the same level? And that for me is why thinking about care instead of service in some of these discussions is interesting because it brings the interdependency back into the picture. It's very different to say these natural resources are a part of things that we use as resources to serve us than think that they are part of a web of care. So that's why bringing the notion of care within this entanglement of the non-human may change and shift some of the ways we think about we relate with the non-human today. Mm -hmm. What I find interesting in both the things you said is you both insist very much on what you call the divergent, the specific, the situated, the maybe local. Dimitris was talking about ecology as something not universal. You're talking about care webs also as something not universal. Then you also have another term, which for me would be also a question how it relates to the care term, also to the responsibility and obligation, which is the commoning term. And this is something you both do. And me, having been involved in social movements, I, of course, have been using this term in the social realm and in the activist realm. And for me, it would be interesting to see how do we put these ideas that actually are expressing also a kind of responsibility for each other in practice into the ecological discourse. What does change if we put a metaphor like commoning into the ecological discourse, as also Maria has been doing with the care term? And maybe, maybe also the specificity and the situatedness plays also a role that you have been both stressing in what you have been saying. For us, the commons is a really important term, but it is also actually a practice. It is a really important practice for many reasons. Probably the most important reason is the political reason, because we now, especially and primarily in the global north, on the market or the state to provide for us. So there is so many market or state infrastructures that constitute what our lives are. But we think in an ecological perspective or in a transformative perspective, the commons is very important, is is there, is actually always there, and it will become more and more necessary for us, when I say for many different communities, to engage with all these changes that will be happening as these socio-ecological conflicts unfold. So the, the commons is, is really important as both a vision, an idea and a practice, but it is mostly thought as the social commons. It is thought as in social terms. So when we talk about the social commons, is how communities define rules of participation, engagement, sharing, care for a certain object, for a certain uh, idea, for a certain environment. It might be very uh, specific. It can be a pasture 
or it can be something that is immaterial. It could be cultural tradition or a song. It can have many, many dimensions. But we have been thinking mainly the commons as the social commons, be it now a local commons, be it the translocal commons, virtual common communities or hybrid communities that mix the local or the translocal and the virtual, but mostly as the social commons. And we wanted to think of what Maria said before, the role of non-humans in sustaining the commons. So the commons never exist in the abstract and never exist outside the specific ecology. And this ecological embeddedness is never static. It is a process of co-emergence, the commoners and the commons, the land, the plants, the animals, the concrete geology, the local commons rights, the rules of engagement and participation, all these construct each other. Subjectivity, the subjectivity of the commoners and the practices together with the geologies or the technologies that are used, the animals and the plants, they make each other. And when they disappear, when the commons disappear, they disappear in tandem, humans and animals, and sometimes the geological diversity that we have. So we know already from from the commons movements, the commons practices, that without the commons, there wouldn't be social reproduction. And that's why why we think it's important to highlight the commons as a a vision for future political practice. We are thinking that social reproduction happens only through the school that we bring our kids or through the object that we purchase in the market environment or for the vaccines that are developed through both government-funded research and techno-scientific research and multinational companies. But there is a lot for social reproduction that happens in the commons. Now, this is important for us, but here again, we're going to do the next step. And the next step is to say, without ecological reproduction, there is no social reproduction. So we cannot have the commons that contribute to our social reproductions without ecological reproduction. And then, of course, the question is, how does ecological reproduction happen? And there is an assumption that it is used quite often that in the core of ecological reproduction, there is a relational model, that relationality is is everything. Everything is about relations. And that is perhaps to a certain extent true, but at least for me, I don't know how Maria thinks about this. I don't think that we have discussed that. But at least for me, there are limitations in this understanding of everything as a relation. Because a, a relational model of thinking of the reproduction of the ecological commons 
is based on an ontology of exchange. It might be a non-monetary exchange. So it might be you give or take other stuff that are non-monetary. It might be services, it might be practice, it might be ideas, but it is an ontology. So a way where everything happens through exchange. And I think many people um, from the social movements, but also in the commons and more generally when they highlight the ecological dimensions of social life, they refer to mutualism or reciprocal exchange as core example of this relational model of being. But I, I was thinking that perhaps we need to think of different ways of thinking the ecological commons that go beyond relationality as the model of the ecological commons. And I've been thinking that perhaps coexistence, we exist, we participate in spaces, but we are not always in relation. Relation has something intentional, is is often too subjective. So how could we think of coexistence as the way that the ecological commons are sustained and reproduce themselves. And here I came to this idea of commensality. So commensal relations between humans or non-humans that are part of, of a certain ecological space. Commensal bonds are bonds that different Actors, different organisms, different participants in an ecological space share between them. There are intimate contacts, but they are not always intended. In fact, in many cases, there is not a relation. There is closeness, there is proximity, but without a relation. And commensality has also this other dimension beyond this intimate, proximal closeness that is about living something without harming or benefiting others. And others can take it and use it if they want, or just leave it and move on. So you create things and you leave them, you leave them on the table. It's like, you know, often the morning breakfast where you ask your kids, Uh, or you prepare something and you're leaving on the table and they eat it or not. And so it's something that has to do with relations that are not primarily based on reciprocity, but are primarily based on coexistence. And we think eco-commoning is whole through this kind of commensal bonds through coexistence, which sometimes it becomes a relation, sometimes it becomes mutualism, but most of the time, or perhaps not most of the time, but very often it is not. And I think that an eco-commoning, the ecological commons that is thinking in terms of coexistence will give us the possibility to develop much richer and much thicker ontologies. I mean, the way we imagine ontology is an ontology of give and take and exchange and relations and social rules and rules of management. But perhaps there are other ontologies, other visions that we can have, richer, thicker ontologies that we probably not have yet, or that many people, many movements 
are developing that are thicker and richer and contribute to this vision of the ecological commons and eco-commoning. Mm. If you allow me to give this back, of course, to Maria, because I, of course, see an analogy of what you're doing. Dimitris has been working on commoning and now puts them more than human into thinking about commoning, which means that commoning itself also changes. And then Maria takes a care of feminist trope and puts them more than human in there. And the question is what happens with care and the relationality there? And of course, the ever always open question and Maria you end in your book with that is okay there is interdependence if we want it or not with ecological surroundings localities specificities but the worms and the soil might care about us but also might not care about us <laughs> they might also don't give a shit <laughs> about uh, humans, right? There is some things they do. And there is, of course, the question, it's not intentional. And what is the texture of this care? And how does, because we tend, of course, and this is your question in your book, to think about this in a very anthropomorphic way. And what now uh, Dimitris has suggested is to really take intentionality completely out of it and ma make it, in a way, even contingent, completely contingent, if something is of use of something in this circle, in the cycle of web and interrelatedness. Is there something that you can think an analogous way in terms of care, Maria, there? Yeah, I mean, there are enormous connections between these two ways of doing the displacement, both of commoning and care with the non-human. And I think uh, this, I completely follow what Dimitri says. And I also have another thing to maybe add that might not be always compatible with that, but that is not necessarily contradictory. And it comes back to this idea maybe of divergent ecologies and different contexts where relationality might not be as important in other places, it might be absolutely you know, unavoidable. So for me, there is one thing. Thinking of care as a more than human doing, there is a reason why I use more than human and, non, and not non-human. Because for me, I don't feel I can speak for the worms except that I can get interested in learning about worms, in understanding, in feeling the worms from different, with different ways of approaching them, whether it's through the, what the scientists say about worms, whether what children say about worms, whether my own experience with worms, and that with everything that is non-human, that don't share um, the capacity to understand or to be, you know, I'm not a worm, simply. Like, so there is something, why saying more than human for me is important, because I start from the perspective of what can I be as a human in this world. So for me, the question of ethics starts from that, uh, which doesn't mean that that's how all ethics need to start. But for me, I wouldn't say I can do non-human theory, but I want to be able to think and to feel with this world that I know makes me too, and I make with, and I have a responsibility and an obligation towards it. So that's the first thing. And that's why the question of intentionality is really important, but it's also... Again, and I come back to this question of language and how do we read a world that doesn't speak through language in that way. So 
intentionality, there is a whole this discussion there that I, I cannot go into and that I am also not super versed in. Like if, if you look at discussions with, within work of Donna Haraway, Karen Barat, they have a very interesting discussion of why intentionality is very limited in the way of understanding how other beings, non-humans are in the world. But for me, it's more about the question of frameworks and the question of how you see and you feel. So if I say that the worms are involved in a web of care, with humans, I think of that in the specific, um, this has come to me through my work on uh, human soil relations. And there, obviously, who are fond of worms, who care for the worms, uh, show how uh, the soil, in order to be fertile and in order to be good soil for us to grow food, there is a work, a labor, and uh, that the, the worms are doing there that is entangled with ours. And if you're thinking of a practitioner who is trying to grow something on the land, then what the practitioner does to the soil, it might not be directly I'm feeding, you know, the worm, but it is going to affect and it's going to be in a relation with the worms. So in that context, it doesn't really matter if the worm is intentionally uh, casting and, and doing holes in the ground and caring of the human. It's going to be affected by what the human is doing and what they do is going to affect what the human does. So in that sense, and especially in the conditions of today where most of the, as we used to call natural worlds, are completely entangled with the effects of human technologies, and human societies, it's very difficult for me to see anything in this world or in this planet as not related to the actions we do. Obviously, uh, there is work also by geographer Catherine Yusuf, who has discussed this idea of there are things that are inhuman that we don't reach, and it's really good to not think them in, in something that they are related to us. I completely see what Dimitri says about some relations that are non-relational in that way. But for me, from the perspective of this understanding of what do I do in this world, it's very important to think relationally. Now, of course, there is context in which it might better not to do anything, like permaculturalists, but another alternative practices of agriculture and growing and ecological design say that it's better to leave some environments alone, following up on Dimitri's work. Like even places that we think are not touched by us with the context of air pollution and environmental distribution of microplastics through the planet, there is, uh, you know, and obviously we can go back and say, oh, that's the Anthropocene theory. But, so this discussion of the immense effects that we have done, and even when you think geologically, there is even thought about like earthquakes being caused by climate change. So I don't know, like I cannot say that everything is affected to the core of the magma of the earth and that's not really what the, my point is. My point is like it is this relational way that is important for me at an ethic, from an ethical perspective and there it doesn't really matter intentionality or not. We are in this connected commons, if you want, process of commoning, of making common our matter and our material and our practices and our energy with non-humans and they are doing it with us. So... So yeah, I think that's uh, one of the things I could add. I'd like to dig a bit deeper into the soil as a shared interest of you both. And um, maybe starting with a question to Dimitris concerning chemicals, because you kind of introduced for me the idea of chemical species in interspecies web of life. And I think it's, I, I was really astonished that when I look back on things I've been interested 
long time already that chemicals don't really appear on the table. And as you say, it matters what we leave on the table and there's just poisonous stuff we leave on the table. So in one of your texts, you also describe a double spiral between chemicals and ecology, how chemicals and ecology are kind of folded into each other. And I think you you have the vast impact in mind of anthropogenic chemicals that now occupy like every bit of soil on the world. So, yeah, could you say something about this double spiral between ecology and um, chemistry and how it plays out in, in practice? The chemicals, and I, I get this question quite often, so why chemicals? And first of all, there is a very practical, simple reason for thinking ecologies and chemicals. And that this very practical and simple reason is what... If you look around you right now, whatever you touch right now, whatever you smell, the air that you breathe, everything contains some kind of anthropogenic chemicals. Perhaps not everything, but definitely 98% of everything that is around us right now, around me, around you, around everyone. And then from all these multiple chemical substances that are around us, only 10% are environmentally or ecologically benign. So only 10% of this vast amount of chemicals are benign and we live in them with them. So this is a chemicalization of of the the natural, the social world. And as far as materiality goes, uh, chemicals is the bedrock of productivism. So we live in the toxic regime, the regime, the condition where it's very difficult, I would say it's impossible to think ourselves outside of this condition of being and constantly engaging, being implicated by, by chemicals. And we know how difficult or even impossible in these current conditions is to imagine a post-capitalist world. But much more difficult would be to imagine a world without anthropogenic chemicals. So chemicals for me is not a metaphor. I'm not using it as a metaphor for something else that will allow me to understand some other kind of order or to excavate some feature of of contemporary society that will give some you know some niche insight or some something that will make social thought easier it's a very very practical question and it's also practical in relation to what we were discussing before about ecological transition which is where i i would like to see and partially also eco-common, in where I would like to see political practice happening. So chemicals is key to achieve ecological transitions. Without alternative chemicals, there is no ecological transition. So where does it come from? And many people say and try to explain chemicals and pollution and toxicity and accumulation and environmental damage and destruction through politics. And actually not just through politics, but through capitalist expansion. But capitalism and productivism is not 
the explanations here. So it cannot explain chemicals. For me, capitalism or productivism is the explanandum, is something that needs to be explained. And I'm using chemicals to understand the processes in their, our lives and how we are embedded in them. We need to understand productivism through chemicals. And I don't think that the other way around would be a sufficient way to democratize materiality, to achieve ecological transition, to make alternative chemicals more accessible. So this is, this is a political reason. This is the practical reason why chemicals are important for me. Now, th there is another reason which goes beyond the political in a certain way, chemicals exist in time scales that are beyond the human. Nitrogen, for example, that humans pump in excess through fertilizer into the environment, or phosphorus transforms the environment in much larger time frames than one or two or three generations in which this happens. We have chemicals and materials that have time scales of 700 years, many plastics decompose in these time scales. We have radioactive materials, plutonium, that have time scales of 24,000 years. We have many compounds that we have created that have time scales that are unknown, or time scales that multiply because some of these decompose or recompose to something else that we didn't know that this will happen, or get together and create synergies of compounds. The time scales are different than the time scales of the human. The humans which, who engage, use, uh, uh, work with chemicals, elements, and create compounds. So chemical elements become very different within an elemental time scale. And this is the second reason why chemicals are important for me, because it brings together the elements, the materiality of the chemical elements with this bigger, but perhaps the, it's not about size, with these earthly elemental forces, water, air, soil, earth, that create our planetary landscapes. So we cannot really think chemicals or at least for me, it's very difficult to think chemicals within the social science or the, the metaphors that we use in social thought and in social theory, such as structures or networks or systems, which, you know, dominate paradigms of Western social thought. Chemicals can be approached in, in a different ontology, and perhaps this is also a possibility, one of the many, 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 of course, possibilities to, to think them, ontologies that are elemental. So the elements and the compounds exist with and within the elemental. And I think this has many political consequences. The second move, apart from the practical consequence I was referring before, it the, this more broader thinking of the elemental as a possible way of reconceptualize our social and ecological ways of being 
has severe political consequences. And until now, if you think in the tradition of the left especially, we have always a kind of historical optimism. This is a mentality of post-1968 social movements where you would think that if we don't win today a battle, the next one will be won. Something like, you know, Tonstein and Serben in 1972, they were saying, yet the Slacht via Verlieren bedeutet unsere nächsten Sieg. So the, the, the Sieg will come, the, the, we will win at some time this battle. But in this time frame, in these elemental time frames, this is no longer possible. This is a change of how social movements think of political action in the future. The ecological conflict, this general ecology that we would like to have and we cannot have, is perhaps never achievable. So there is something in chemicals, as in many, many other things, of course, that people think that allows us to think politics beyond something that has marked so much the the political practice of the previous four or five or six decades. We might win a few battles, but we might need to think that we have already Maybe lost Maria, the war. Maybe, could you relate this to your notion of, of soil and soil care? Because what I really like about it is that it's not only about embodied processes of creation and recreation, but also about destruction and breakdown. And it's interesting how like the chemistry of soil also connects these vast timescapes with like concrete practices and minuscule uh, processes in in the ground. And of course, like man-made chemical compounds play a big role in how we approach or how we could still approach soil in a kind of productive way. And maybe you can also relate that to your experiences in permaculture. You're absolutely right. I mean, this question of the, um, the relation uh, and the connection between Dimitri's work on the anthropogenic chemicals, these being manufactured compounds of matter, so that nature is always compounding chemicals. It's something that it's done by life. You know, it's like the, the way, or at least the story that science has told us about the creation of the universe is about how from elemental chemicals, they became compounded into matter, and that's how life came about, you know, very explained briefly. So for me, what was very appealing at the beginning in, in, in my participation in permaculture practices and my training in, in those practices was this way in which practitioners become to conceive themselves as part of the modern human community of soil, as participants of it rather than as users or as just using it for production, etc. And part of one of the practices that is very appealing because it's something that we can all do in some way, even when we don't have a garden, was this practice of composting and returning matter to the soil, the organic matter that we don't need anymore or excess, and trying to therefore contribute to this idea of being part of cycles that otherwise we disrupt by creating an excess of waste. And so I had thought a lot about through that that kind of practice and, you know, we, 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 we peel our vegetables, we put them in the compost and then they decompose and they become soil, let's say. So it's, it's very idealized, but that's a bit what, what, what the whole thing is about. Permaculture talks about this as sharing the surplus, which also puts it in relation with a notion of more than human justice, 
economic, social and economic justice. Now, because my work is very interested in looking at how different trends and dynamics happen through activist practices, but also the sciences, so how the sciences both connect or contribute to practitioners' actions with the soil and the ways they care from the soil. I also have been studying how science look at, looks at that looks at the, the contribution, how science contributes with knowledge, but also contributes to technologies. And one of the fieldwork experiences I had was I visited a plant, which is called a biodigestate plant, which is a plant in which people who are farmers in themselves, but they also do this as a way of earning money, bring waste from supermarkets that they put in these containers and with a, a range of chemical processes that I, I cannot even understand or explain very well. This over time becomes a liquid and they create this liquid that is biofertilizer. So it's organic, it's all good. And they give it for free because the income they make is from actually helping the supermarkets to get rid of the food waste. That's the money they get from, from being waste processors. Now, when I went to visit that plant, I was really interested in seeing the compost that came because they have... There is liquid and there is solid that comes out. And I thought, oh, I'm going to see the pile of compost. I was taking pictures and then I approached this pile of compost and it was full of plastic little threads. So it was a vision of hell, actually. <laughs> it was, uh, and, and they were telling me, no, this is, we cannot use it in that way. Yeah, we put it in some of the flower beds, but it has to be mixed and it will always have these little pieces of plastic. So it somehow was a bit of a shock in my system of this way of seeing all these discussions in permaculture that I was part of and that I am still interested in and of seeing the kind of idealized way in which we saw the embodiment of us as part of soil and as part of these cycles and seeing this a bit in a, in a different way. While the soil in itself for me is uh, like the embodiment of these processes by which matter breaks down is broken down by both the decomposition of organic matter to which living organisms help, bacteria, worms, etc., whatever is in the soil, and how this is decomposed, and then um, how rock and uh, non-organic matter is broken down by the weathering um, of, of the rock and becomes this mix of organic and non-organic matter. So the soil itself is a product of decomposed, broken down matter. And for me, the idea that we have put all this compounds in the world that cannot be broken down anymore in any means by these, let's say, so-called natural cycles, as science has conceptualized them, immediately brings with it an, again, eco-political or eco-ethical obligation that we need to assist the breakdown of matter that we have put in the world. And that's why it's, it's really kind of impossible to think of undoing all this without technoscience. So we become actually trapped in this kind of realization that we cannot undo these technologies without technologies in a way, which is obviously the trap in which we have been since the beginning of modernity, because for a, a bad technology, we propose a new technology that we think is good, but then it's going to be bad in the long term. So we have all these paradoxical thing, paradoxical situations and alternatives and infernal contradictions that we are trapped in. But mainly, in a way, kind of philosophically and ethically, the question of breakdown, which for me became like a kind of path to think with, because then I have been thinking of my main kind of ethical contribution <laughs> is care, repair, you know, heal. But actually, the act of care in some ways needs to be assist breakdown. 
a six breaking down a part of our human infrastructures that we have become so dependent on, assisting breaking down social structures that contribute and that we are dependent on, that depend on all this material world that Dimitris is talking about, these anthropogenic chemicals, etc. But what I really like, and I, I kind of tend to have an attraction for ambivalent notions, so breakdown, if you, you step out of this discussion of the nature cultural cycles of the soil and of the of the obstruction of the ecological cycles. You step out of that and, and you're thinking a system breakdown, really? I mean, what do you mean by that? A breakdown has immediately a different feel if you think socially and culturally. It's something that we are meant to avoid. When something breaks down, it's, it's exposing the vulnerability of things, of the world. Uh, think of a mental health breakdown, a spiritual breakdown. So it's for me interesting to think with this notion of critical breakdown, because the question here is not that breakdown becomes some kind of universal obligation. There is no, it's, it's, think, it's thinking in a situated way again, which in, in different contexts, which are the vital processes of breakdown that are being obstructed? What is a breakdown a sign of? If something breaks down, might be that there is an obstruction somewhere, that, the, that there is a, a sort of balance that cannot continue in that way. And if you come back to the metaphor of the mental health breakdown, sometimes a breakdown, you know, when you say I, I'm going through a breakdown, I cannot work anymore. It simply maybe shows that you, it was unsustainable, that you were obstructing kind of a sustainability of the circulation of your own energy with other people in, in your own ecology of existence. So for me, there are these ideas there, but there are also very important to, to not perversely become bring, bringing this again as an universal thing because for me breakdown invites interrogations pertaining to environmental injustice in the sense that the idea that life is about enduring and about building up matter and about building up stuff is very embedded in this cosmological story of from the elements things are combined and, and become more complex forms of life and at the top of that form of life you have human intelligence or, you know, like, but if you think about it as it's entangled with the regimes of accumulation and endurance, historically, it is some social and cultural regimes that have resisted breakdown more than others. So industrial capitalism, white industrial capitalism, colonialism, etc., has capitalized on building up endurance and accumulating life and, you know, greedily constructing endurance and let it by, by breaking down others, by obstructing other people's life force and also other ways of living with non-humans. So for me, it's again about identifying in differently situated ways which vital forms of breakdown are being obstructed where and what are the compounds we should be assisting breakdown to facilitate the recirculation of livability. So again, to make common livability, to make common energy matter and sharing it um, in a way that is not accumulated in one form of life. From what you have been talking about now, Maria, for me, striking is the fact that both your thinking always points to the question of reparation and repair as a political obligation, which, coming back to what Dimitris was saying about the left, is a complete other concept of thinking the Zeek, of thinking the victory of the left, because the left has been thinking itself always 
in the frame of progress, in the frame of improvement, in the frame of accumulation, in the frame of adding up, in the frame also even of growth, in the frame of something building up, right? And of course, this might all seem very, very obvious to talk about repair, but I think it's not obvious in the realm of how we have been thinking about political progress until now. So to think as a solution, as a repair, as assisting a breakdown or as assisting a circulation as a process is, I think, can be a revolutionary uh, idea still already in the ecological discourses because if we see how we discuss these things at the moment in the movements is still with big narratives so we talk about the end of the world uh, which is uh, a counter idea of the world being in progress all the time you know and the way you are talking is actually as if it already has happened as if we are in the aftermath of a catastrophe, or maybe we have to think of an aftermath of a catastrophe. And um, it's about repairing um, this catastrophe. And uh, Dimitris and also you, Maria, you talk much more about grassroots chemistry, for example, in permaculture, or you talk about many paths of minor healing in a distributed invention of power. And even this techno-scientific repair, what you have been talking about, Maria, where you also use the term of bioremediation, is not something that I understand as the big new solution, but something that can only be made in a very specific, located and situated small practice, small philosophy if you want. So the question maybe you want to develop, what is for you the difference between this yeah, way of techno-fixing with techno-scientific tools and this more minor healing with long-term repair? I don't know if this makes sense as a question. Absolutely, yeah, a lot. And I think this is I think for us, something that we have been discussing a lot, and perhaps, Maria, we can use this as a way to, for both of us to, to respond and think this question and to, to conclude the, uh, this discussion. Uh, I think a, a lot depends on how you understand repair. And, and I think the idea of a global repair is a vision or perhaps a fantasy that you see in so many different political spaces in global north neo, uh, liberal societies where we think let's redirect some investments, um, let's pump some money here or there to the industry or to science in order to develop a new technological innovation or new technological innovations. So you see an attempt to capitalize on this vision of, of a global repair and of course all the way to the other uh, side of this political spectrum of global North liberal societies with Bernie Sanders and the, or even the, the British Labour Party with the Green New Deal, which is in some way or another an idea based on green growth. And then you have 
on the other hand, the radical left or the left, and they would say, in order to have a global repel, we need to change politics first. So we need a different political system. And when we have it, we'll develop alternative technology and alternative means of production and production. And th- this is their answer to that. And of course, between these two, on the one hand, the let's say the technological fix, and on the other hand, the political fix that will solve these problems, we have uh, autocratic or fascist negationism of all environmental issues that we currently face. And they say there is nothing to repair. So there is, you know, the global repair strategy of liberal thinking or liberal practice and the political strategy of the left that everything comes afterwards, the fix come after the politics, and you have the fascist or the far-right global no-repair. And these are where we are now. These are the three positions that dominate. And within these very dominant uh, positions, we've been thinking that along the lines of, of many minor ecological transitions? How do we mobilize across multiple geographies, across multiple scales, contexts, translocalities? And this is not not a vision, it's something that it is happening. And here also what, at least for me, is very, very important is not create an opposition between techno-science and this Uh, ecological transitions in the way that everything else is split in many different ways through this ecological imbalance, the impossibility of achieving a general ecology. In the same way, technoscience is also split. There is within technoscience, I mean, within the many, many, many different disciplines and sub-disciplines and fields of technoscience, competing ways of approaching things, things that can contribute to ecological transitions and things that are destructive. Technoscience, as everything else, as the left that we were saying, is equally split. So I see here alliances and alignments between ecological transitions from different groups and scales, from science to civil society, from social movements to different communities, from virtual transitions to concrete local transitions. And just to finish here, perhaps what is important for us is that we want to contribute because, at least for me, it's not that I believe that we need two, three, many ecological transitions in order at some point to achieve a global repair. As you said, perhaps we are in the post. We are in a situation where this is not the question. But it is a way to secure as much as possible or to maintain as much as possible livable worlds for certain communities in a process of social and ecological upheaval and destruction. So ecological transition is something that it's necessary in order to maintain life and to maintain life in a livable way. So repair then has the other meaning of reparation. That's where the two meanings come together. You cannot restore or recover or reclaim or regenerate something 
without a sense of reparation, reparation for something that has been damaged, reparation of colonial damages to land and its people, reparations to communities affected by environmental injustice and environmental damage, reparation to children whose lungs have been compromised by the way our societies are organized and the, by the, the air they breathe. So there is an immediate sense of justice here, which runs through the idea of ecological transitions and minor repair. I think it's, it's not anarchist, it's not liberal, it's none of all this because it's not just one. It is more the practical justice that each different community brings with it into this process of ecological transition. Different communities bring different politics and different beliefs, but they have their own moral economies. They have their own justice that is given by previous communities, by previous uh, movements. So repair and reparation, when they come together, they address a kind of practical justice that addresses social and ecological conflict. But I don't know, Maria probably has a different approach to repair. So I don't know how, Maria, how you, yeah. These are, I think, Dimitris, you said so many things and it was so beautiful that I don't really know how to add something. <laughs> I think, first of all, there are many things there to think about. One of the things I was thinking about is that for me, and I think this comes from a background in feminist politics, where for me it was very clear coming into feminist politics in the 1990s that there were different ranges of feminist positionings at very different scales from institutional governmental to the most bottom grassroots minoritarian groups I was involved with. And it was very clear for us at the time, those groups I, um, I was involved with that we needed all of it at the same time. So I welcome the Green New Deal and I welcome all that and it gives me a lot of hope. I welcome the minor little group in the neighborhood who might try to create a compost bin shared by four houses. All of that for me is, you know, a mini hope in the everyday. And I wouldn't give necessarily more hope to the Green New Deal, given that we know that politics with a big P, you know, where it can go. So I, I have all this, this, this thought that in a way, these are divergent politics again, divergent spheres of politics, and that obviously they are going to enter in conflict and they are going to be sometimes impeding each other. But at the end of the day, there is so much to do at this point that it's difficult not to welcome sometimes the big grand scale political projects. And you can see that with groups like Extinction Rebellion in the UK, they are both ultra minoritarian. They are both like very diversified in the types of mini groups and the, the kind of this decentralized form of organization they have embraced. And the fact that they also want government intervention to be massive, like that everything stops. And for that, you need actually not only direct action, but you need some kind of political will at a very macro level. So like these are simultaneous in terms of the environmental emergency. Now, that the end of the world is already here. This is something that is also a consciousness of the privilege from where I speak from. Outside from my window, I don't see the end of the world. I mean, obviously, if we can say I analyze the air and I smell, you know, all this pollution and all that stuff. It depends where you live. 
but we know that the end of the world has been the end of the world for many different people. For me, of course, I'm, I'm very worried of losing this privilege and the future of my children that right now have a kind of very protected environment in a small town in the East Midlands. But I know that this is kind of an anomaly that precariousness of our worlds is something that um, we have somehow had a, a small bracket of history in which it seemed that precariousness was the anomaly, while actually is the norm. And therefore, for me, the idea that we have a responsibility of this privilege, because we are in a planet of limited resources, what does it, what, what is it going to mean to give up environmental privilege? Is there an ecological privilege that we need to give up? Obviously. So what does it mean to restore some kind of circulation? Again, it comes back to what needs to be broken down. That's a question that I'm thinking a lot recently because of the, the question of what is a local action and what does it mean to think from place. Give, to give a, a very simple example, when you try to make a garden in a backyard, in a suburban area of a industrial town, you don't just plant in the soil, you bring it in bags. You, you have to buy bags of compost and, and even establishing a community garden requires bringing soil from somewhere else. You are building up the place from that and you are building also place through all the things that you have that others don't have and that you have because historically have been, you know, stolen from somebody else. <laughs> so, so there is all this responsibility of, of interconnection that thinking of it as global interconnectedness is very abstract, but in the concreteness of place, this place is already very complex and it has an enormous amount of accountabilities in terms of ecological accumulation. And what does it mean to have ecological privilege today? That's for me one of the questions that is really important and that also plays in different ways, in different scales, depending on what levels of politics you're talking about. And for me, they are all important and we need to really keep this in mind because while we start saying, oh, that politics is... Uh, too grand and that's too minoritarian It's never going to change anything. In the meantime, we get the government installing a new law that is going to disable the capacity of protesting in the UK while we have our little fights about which is the actual right way to go. They are not going to have any fights. They are very clear where they are going. So <laughs> while we are all entangled in like, I might have a consumerist lifestyle that connects me to any other conservative person in, in the UK, like there are many other entanglements. So I'm not going to make a world of black and white. And this kind of interconnected intersectionalities complicate my position in the world. For me, the, 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 the question of what are our politics today? It's about this multiscalar and, and uh, interconnected way of acting at all the different possible levels. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a very interesting talk. Burning Futures.